0: no perfect people allowed we're studying three individuals from the bible who all had personal issues they had junk they were a little bit jacked up and they believed this disqualified them from ministry and yet god did significant things in them and through them as we study their lives we're encouraged and we're reminded that god wants to do significant things in our lives too and i was reminded this week what the entire purpose is of pastors in the church And sometimes we think things like, oh, pastors are there to speak well because I can't speak well. The entire reason for pastors in a church is this. The biblical model is that I am not the minister. I am a minister, and you are all full-time ministers as well. Would you just look at somebody and say, you're a minister? Even that person who you're like, no, not them, that's the person who needs to hear it. You're a minister. You're a minister. You're a minister. Because we all have spheres of influence. You work with people. You have people in your family. You're married to people. You have kids. You are the minister to those people. God has put you in places by his divine orchestration. My job is to simply build your faith, encourage you, do my best to equip you with the word of God to make you better, more effective ministers in your context. The purpose of pastors in the church is not to outsource ministry to say, we need to get a professional to do this, then I can just go home and say, hey man, I tithe and I just let the professionals take care of their business. The model is We are all ministers, and my job is simply to encourage you and to build your faith to believe that God can use you to make a difference in your sphere of influence. That's the model. That's the purpose of church, equipping the saints. That's what it's all about. That's why we teach the Bible, because I got nothing useful to tell you, okay? We teach the Bible because the word of God is what equips you to be effective as a spouse, as a parent, as an employee, as a student. We believe that with all our hearts, And so you're a full-time minister, and I want you to know that this morning. We're going to jump into a study today on Moses, and I want to give you a little background to set the scene for today's study. So the Israelites at this time were simply called the Hebrews. They're just called the Hebrews. They're a people, an ethnic group, who find themselves in Egypt as oppressed and captive slaves to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And despite these horrific conditions, that Israelites, the Hebrews, are growing in number at a rapid rate because the Lord is blessing them with children. And the Egyptians begin to realize this is a problem because if this population continues to explode, they're simply going to overpower us at some point and rise up in rebellion against us, their taskmasters. So they institute a horrific policy where any baby that is born that is male is immediately killed on the spot to try and curb the population growth. So Moses's mother gives birth to him in secret for fear that he would be killed if he turned out to be a male baby, which he obviously did. She managed to hide him for three months, but quickly realized this wouldn't work as a long-term plan. As he became a young boy walking around, somebody would see him and the Egyptians would kill him. So she had to make a difficult and terrifying decision. What she basically did is she makes a basket-type boat, wraps up baby Moses, puts him in it, puts him in the river, watches him float downstream and prays, God, do, do a miracle. Just do a miracle. And the Lord does. So this basket boat lodges in some reeds by the side of the river, and Pharaoh's daughter goes down bathes in the water, sees the baby. Her heart is taken by the baby. The Bible says she has compassion on it. And she takes the baby out of the water. This whole time, Moses' sister has been running alongside the side of the river, watching the basket boat float down, wondering, no doubt, what's gonna happen to my baby brother? Is he gonna be eaten by a crocodile? Is he gonna drown? She sees what's happened, and she goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women?" to nurse the child for you and Pharaoh's daughter says that's a great idea so Moses's sister goes and gets Moses's own mother and says I found somebody who could take care of this baby for you and the good deal is Pharaoh's daughter says excellent I'll pay you to nurse that kid take care of him she says it's a good deal for me good deal for me it's an incredible incredible story And Moses grows up under his mother's care for a few years. When he's weaned, he is taken to the palace and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into the royal family, and he becomes Egyptian royalty. But Moses lives with this constant awareness that this is not his family, these are not his people. We don't know how he found out, but it's clear that he was aware that he was a Hebrew who had been adopted into the Egyptian royal family. And he's out one day, and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of his own people, a Hebrew. One of the slave drivers abusing one of his own people. He can't stand the sight of it. The Bible says he looks around to make sure no one is there. And he kills the Egyptian slave driver, buries the body in the sand. The next day he's out, he hears people talking and discovers that the secret is out, that he has done this and that Pharaoh has heard about it and Pharaoh wants to have a word with him, the way that parents have a word with their kid in private when they've done something extremely wrong, except this time the word is Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. When you actually play this out in your mind, the story is is incredible. So Moses flees Egypt, goes from being a prince out into the wilderness with just the clothes on his back, running for his life. He settles in an area known as Midian and marries a local woman there, lives with his father-in-law and his wife's family and basically shepherds the flocks of his father-in-law out in this area of Midian. Years and years go by, and the Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses dies, but the Hebrews remain in slavery in Egypt. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, And we're going to start in verse 1. Second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, you might want to underline, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. We talked about this last week when in the Old Testament you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord. Who's it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. It's a Christophany. Remember that super smart sounding word? An appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And notice this, the way the story usually gets told, this is the way I heard it when I was a kid. is more just like Moses is just talking to this burning bush. But what you see here is that Jesus is literally In the midst of the bush, the whole bush is on fire, and the bush is serving to partly conceal the glory of Jesus. He's not appearing just as a man to Moses. He's appearing in a more glorified supernatural state. He's in the middle of the bush. The whole bush is on fire, surrounded by fire, partly concealing him, but this bush isn't being burnt up. It says, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. This is the first thing I want you to write down on your outline. The presence of God turns the ordinary into the holy. The presence of God turns the ordinary into the holy. It was just a bush. It was just dirt. But when the presence of God visited that place, it became holy. And I mentioned this for one reason. We live in the New Testament era. If you know what that means, you should be saying hallelujah. The presence of God now lives in every single one of us who follows Jesus because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in every follower of Christ. This means that you can honestly call anywhere that you set your feet holy ground as legitimately as this was holy ground when the Lord appeared to Moses. So as you go to work, as you go to school, as you walk around your home, remember the presence of God is in you. The presence of God did not stay at home. It's in you. It's with you. Your desk, your cubicle, your truck, wherever you work, wherever you study, wherever you go, it's holy ground because the presence of God is in you. It's with you. That's the paradigm that we need to have. Wherever we go, God is going with us. His presence is going with us. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold... The cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God says, had enough. Had enough of my people's suffering. They're ready to turn back to me as their God. I'm going to set them free. Let's do this. So now keep this in context. I think we could say it's a miracle that Moses survived his own birth. That's a pretty good story. How were you born? Oh, you know, funny story. I was sent down a river, found by Pharaoh, adopted as Egyptian royalty. You know, usual stuff. It's a miracle that he got out of Egypt safely. It's a miracle that after fleeing with nothing but the clothes on his back, he finds a wife and he finds any kind of life. He has nothing going for him. And right now he's talking with Jesus who's appearing to him in fire from inside a bush that doesn't burn up. So surely, surely faith is not going to be a problem. Not going to be a problem. Because Moses can look back on his life and he can see the miraculous goodness of God show up when he needed it the most. So surely faith isn't going to be a problem. But verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So write this down. Moses is paralyzed by his own insecurities. He's paralyzed by his own insecurities. And this is important because we do this all the time. It's it's easy for us to read this and think, wow, he's just just so humble. He just has a, a right view of himself and a right view of God. He's so humble. This is not humility. This is an important thing to learn. This is doubt masquerading as humility. This is just doubt masquerading as humility. And it's so tempting for us to pretend that we're just being humble and taking a low view of ourselves when we, we say things like, I'm, I'm just a lowly servant of God. I'm not really useful in any way. I mean, who am I? It's a nice sentiment, but if we're honest, most of the time it's just doubt masquerading as humility. And write this down. This is why that's not okay. Being led by our insecurities reveals that we have greater faith in ourselves than God. Being led by our insecurities reveals that we have greater faith in ourselves than God. And here's what I mean by that. So you have these two opposing forces. You have God coming to you and I saying, listen, I've called you to do this, and the other opposing force is how we perceive our own limitations, how we view ourselves. We say, God, there's a conflict here because my limitations, the way I view myself, do not jive with what you've called me to do. They're in conflict. And so when we choose to be led by our own insecurities, what we're saying is, these are two certain things, but my limitations are the more certain thing. These are two powerful forces, but my limitations are the more powerful force. These things are in conflict, and if, if one of them is true, nothing is more true Than my issues, my insecurities, my limitations. That's more true than the Word of God. That's why it's not okay to be led by our insecurities. So, how does God respond to Moses saying, I'm a nobody, I'm inadequate, I'm not qualified? Does the Lord launch into a motivational message and try to inflate Moses' view of himself? Does the Lord say, You're wrong, Moses? You're amazing, you're talented, you're funny. You're a visionary. You're a leader of men, Moses. There is greatness in you. You're a tactical genius. God doesn't do that. Moses says, I got all these issues. Verse 12, here's how God addresses them. So he said, I will certainly be with you. I'll certainly be with you. I love that because Moses says, who am I? And God says, you're the guy I'm calling. That's who you are. You're the guy I'm calling. So I'll be with you. That's all you need to know. When the Lord calls you, you can be confident because it's the Lord calling you. God tells you and I the same thing He tells Moses. If you're afraid, if you're fearful, if you're full of doubt, if you're overwhelmed by anxiety, it's because you're looking at yourself instead of looking at me. You're looking in the mirror when you should be looking to the heavens. How many of you know that when you look in the mirror, it's not always very encouraging? God says you're looking in the wrong place for assurance. You're looking in the wrong place if you would like to assuage your fears. That's not where your focus needs to be. The Lord continues speaking. And this shall be a sign that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I like that because God's saying, this will be the sign. This is how you know I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. So when I do it, you'll know that I did it, okay? It was like, all right, all right. But Moses still can't get past his own insecurities. Verse 13, let's jump there. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel. And then you want to underline this. I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. I want you to write this for your next fill in. Don't get confused because the first blank is intended to actually stay blank. So when our insecurities say, but I'm not, you can fill in the blank there. The Lord reassures us with his name. I am. I am. When our insecurities say, but I'm not, fill in the blank, the Lord reassures us with his name, I am. I'm not smart enough, God, I am. I'm not influential, God, I am. I'm not resourced enough, I am. I'm not experienced enough, I am. I'm not qualified, I am, I am. The very name that the Lord shared with Moses was the answer to all of Moses' objections and excuses. And that's his answer for all of our excuses as well. And as a side note, the name I am also speaks to the omnipresence of God. Omnipresence just means everywhere at once. I'd say the closest thing we have to this on earth is maybe Starbucks. And it's, it's the truth that the Lord is everywhere at the same time. He's not limited by geography. And you might have heard that. But the name I am also speaks to the Lord's omnipresence in time. He's not only everywhere at the same time in terms of geography. He's everywhere at the same time in terms of time. He's everywhere across the line of time. He's present. He is I am, present tense, at every point in history. Right. So I always want to point out how important this is because when you understand this, you understand that when the Lord makes his promises in the Bible... He makes them having already seen them come to pass. He's never hoping things will work out in the end. He's never hoping that his word will turn out to be true. He's seen it all play out already. And the promises of God in Scripture are much more like reports from the future of what has already happened. He's already there. He's already seen it all. And I love that. I am. So after this, the Lord will go on to tell Moses what to say to the Hebrews. He'll command Moses to share with them that their God is going to set them free and lead them into a promised chosen land. But first, Pharaoh will refuse to let them go, and so the Lord will have to do something miraculous, which we will know as the plagues of Egypt. So God's going to use Moses, and that's a settled issue, right? No. Moses' mind is still overwhelmed by all the possible things that could go wrong. He's still paralyzed by insecurity, And he continues to talk to the Lord as though there are some things that the Lord may not have considered. You ever done that before? Lord, I know you know everything, but I think there's something here you might have missed. Let me just bring your attention to something. The Bible says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The answer, of course, is all of us, all of us. We've all attempted to be the counselor of the Lord, and that's what Moses is gonna do. We're gonna jump to chapter four, verse one in Exodus. It says, then Moses answered and said, Angle, you haven't thought of, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Nobody's gonna take me seriously. I got no credibility. So the Lord said to him, <laughs> I like the way God does this. What, uh, what's that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. When you actually imagine that's really funny in your head. God's a little bit annoyed by Moses' continuing questions. So he just punks him with this one thing. He's like, throw your rod on the ground. (laughs) Ah! And it turns into a snake. It's just hilarious in my head to imagine it. And then the Lord says to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And the Lord said that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So just put your hand inside your coat by your chest. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. It was white, it had leprosy. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. I wonder how many times he did that before God was like, Moses, Moses, focus. Focus, focus. (laughs) (laughs) Come on back, Moses. Then the Lord said, then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So here's the lesson. This is on your outline. An infinitely creative God, an infinitely powerful God is not limited by our resources. An infinitely creative and powerful God is not limited by our resources. Moses says, how am I going to convince them?" The Lord doesn't say, you know any card tricks? You have like a deck with you or anything like that? Um, Do you have a really fancy chariot? God just takes what he has and says, I'll work with what you got. We'll make it happen. I don't have enough money. God says, well, then we'll get you some more. I don't know the right people. Well, then I'll send you the right people. I don't meet the requirements. Well, then I'll change the requirements. God used what Moses had, the little he had, to perform miracles. He's a God without limits. In Luke 1, it says, with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible when God speaks a command, everything in the universe will bend to his will in order to make it happen. Just with a word from his mouth. He stands so high above his creation that even if the laws of the universe, which he put into place, need to break in order for his will to be done, they will break. Just by the word of his mouth. He's not limited in any way. He's not constrained in any way. But unbelievably, Moses is still not done with his insecurities. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Bible scholars tell us that Moses was a stutterer. It's another time where I think it's just incredibly cruel that we use the word stutterer to describe someone who has a problem with stuttering. About as cruel as putting an S in the word lisp, right? We have lisp and stutterer. We had some sadistic people creating the English language, I think. So God doesn't even think that this is an issue. In fact, God viewed this as a positive. You remember last week in our study of Gideon? Gideon has a whole bunch of dudes and God's like, I need less people. Or you guys are going to take the credit for this. He's like, I need less, less, less. Takes it down to 300 versus 135 God says, okay, now maybe you'll understand that this was me who did this. So God, God is stoked that Moses has a stuttering issue. He says, hey, this is just great. It's just going to be more obvious that it was me doing this through you. When you can take the king of Egypt and make him cower in fear before a stuttering shepherd, it's obvious God is doing something. And it's still true for us. In fact, the apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. I put it on your outlines. He said, for you see your calling, brethren that not many wise, he's saying, look around you and take note, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I think that every pastor should have that sort of hanging on their wall. Why were you chosen for ministry? It's right here. When people look at me, they go, hey, God's doing something. Because I know that guy. There's just no other explanation right here. And I really think this is sometimes why, why it all falls apart when, when you find someone who's gone to school for eight years and is just brilliant and intelligent, but there's just no power there when they put all that education to use. There's just no power, and you can't put your finger on it, and you realize, I'll tell you why there's no power. You got certificates hanging all over your wall. Your whole office is decorated with your accomplishments and all the reasons why you're good. I work out of a carport, okay? It's also our worship practice facility and our world headquarters. You're welcome to visit anytime. It's not very prestigious at all. We have donated carpet. So (laughs) that's right. God has chosen the foolish things to show off his glory, his glory. I think this is the biggest obstacle for people coming to Jesus they're just not ready to admit that they fall into that category (laughs) you know I'm pretty great this is going to be difficult for you this is going to be really really hard for you so back to our story Moses has objected to God using him because he's a stutterer verse 11 so the Lord said to him God's getting a little ticked now who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute the deaf the seeing or the blind have not I the Lord now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. I think this is God's way of saying, say my name, Moses. Say my name. What's my name? That's right. I am. I am. So there's a lesson here and it's not a profound lesson. This is one of these. It's just freaking obvious. God knows what you were created for because he's the one who created you. He knows what you were created for because he's the one who created you. It is foolishness to sit and argue with God about I can't do that when you're arguing with the one who said I made you to do that. I can't do that. God says you don't even know what you're talking about. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know everything about you. I know you better than you know yourself. If I say you can do it. You can do it. That's the end of the discussion. Pretty foolish to argue with your creator about what you were created for. Verse 13, but he, Moses, said, even after all this, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Lord, I'd like to recommend anybody else. (laughs) Anybody else. Anybody, God. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said... Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. And I just want to point out God did great things through Moses, but he wanted to do even more. He wanted to do even more. He wanted to give Moses the chance to stand before people and in the area of his greatest weakness, speaking in public, he wanted to do a miracle through him. Man, how amazing would that have been for Moses? And he missed out. He just said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he disagreed with God. said, it can't be done. can't be done. Don't miss out on the great things that God wants to do through you. Don't miss out Those are some of life's greatest moments. And if you're not familiar with the story, Moses goes, the people listen, but Pharaoh won't let them go. He actually increases their workload, making their circumstances even worse. And the Hebrews complain to Aaron and Moses, basically saying, Thanks for nothing. Worst rescuers ever. That's basically what they say. Moses is discouraged, but the Lord reaffirms his promise to free the Hebrews. Moses tells the Hebrews, but they don't believe him. He goes to Pharaoh again. Pharaoh won't listen either. So the Lord begins to pour out supernatural plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh's heart stays hard until eventually he lets them go, but only after Egypt has endured unbelievable devastation as a result of the plague sent by the Lord. Even after letting them go, Pharaoh almost immediately changes his mind and sends his army after the Hebrews. You may know the story. They pursue them and trap them up against the Red Sea, but the Lord does another incredible miracle, parting the Red Sea so that the Hebrews can pass through safely and then closing the Red Sea on the Egyptian army, killing them. Freed from Egypt, Israel continues her journey towards the promised land of Canaan, but along the way, unbelievably, Israel turns away from God and begins worshiping a false god that Aaron made, the golden calf. As a result of that, instead of their journey taking around 40 days, takes around 40 years. It's pretty heavy, pretty heavy. And now Moses is tasked with leading the people through the wilderness for 40 years. Talk about being overwhelmed by insecurity and fear. God, I signed up for like 40 days. Now it's 40 years. Is this children's ministry? See what I did there? It's pretty good, right? He was like, man, how, how did this happen to me? How did this happen to me? All along the way, the Lord would answer and reassure him the same way by reminding Moses who it was that called him and who it was that was with him. I am. One of my favorite lines from the life of Moses was spoken by the Lord when Moses is once again overwhelmed by how impossible something is that the Lord has called him to. The Lord responds simply by saying, I like the way the New American Standard says it. The Lord says, is the Lord's power limited? So Moses is saying, how are you going to do this? How is this possible? God just says, is my power limited? Is, Is that the issue here? Is that the problem here? And it would benefit us greatly to ask ourselves that question in times of doubt and fear. Is the Lord's power limited? Is that the problem here? Because it never is. You know what's so beautiful about the life of Moses is that he never becomes perfect. He never fully gets it. He still loses his cool. He still freaks out. He still doubts sometimes. But he comes to understand that anything is possible if God is with him. And that truth is revealed by how he handles the prospect of God not being with him when it happens. So let's flip ahead to Exodus 33. All the way to Exodus 33. And this is gonna be where God reveals the immediate consequence of the Hebrews' decision to worship a false god instead of him. God stays honestly pretty calm when they begin worshiping the golden calf. He's like the scary parent. You ever have that like with your parents where they're gonna discipline you, but they delay it and it's even more terrifying? They're like, we'll talk about this later. It's like, oh man, that's what God does to the Hebrews. And so keep in mind that this is all taking place before the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer. So in the Old Testament era, the presence of God could come and go. It could be limited to a certain place. So when we talk about the presence of God leaving, it's like gone. It's a different era. In verse 1, chapter 33, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I'll send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hevite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. That just means you're a stubborn people. Let me explain what God has just said. He said Moses I made a promise to these people and because I'm God I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you to the promised land and I'll give it to you but I'm going to send my angel with you to finish this project because I'm done. I've just had enough and if I stay I think I might just kill everybody. I'm leaving. (laughs) And when this project is over God says "You're, you're on your own. I'll keep my promise but then you're on your own. Verse four, it says, and when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. The people all understand if God's presence leaves us, if he won't go with us, it's over. We're done. We're just just counting down the days to our destruction. And they suddenly become acutely aware that without God, there's no hope. There's no future. And so Moses sets up a tent away from all the people and goes there to talk with the Lord. Let's jump down to verse 12. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you also have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Here's what's happening. Moses is completely freaking out. He is losing it. He's beside himself. He can't deal with the thought that God might leave them. He's throwing a fit and he's ranting, but I believe that Moses' actions and words deeply blessed the heart of God because Moses' freak out proved that Moses finally understood that God being with him was everything. It was everything. And I think God was looking at Moses and saying, this is a completely appropriate response to me threatening to leave. Verse 14, and he, the Lord, said, and then you want to unline this whole sentence, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And notice this, I love this. Moses is still so busy freaking out, he literally doesn't catch what God just says, has just said, and he just keeps on going. You ever been that? It's like, you've got to let me do this. Okay, you can do it. Why won't you let me do this? He completely misses what God has said. Verse 15, then he, Moses, said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Moses is saying, you're the only thing. You are the only thing that makes us matter. You're the only thing that's good about us. It's your presence that makes us special and different. Verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, and then underline, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. The presence of God is with you. He's with you. Right now, he is with you because you have found grace in his sight, because he knows you by name. Do you realize how blessed we are We live in the era where God's presence doesn't come and go. We live in the era of even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. We live in the era where Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to close with one of my favorite stories. The British pastor and revivalist, John Wesley, is one of the greatest ministers of the gospel of all time. So historians estimate that he traveled a quarter million miles on horseback. Quarter million miles on horseback. I hear that and I just go, that's some serious chafing of some kind. <laughs> and he preached more than 40,000 sermons. More than 40,000 sermons. And he's used to bring revival to two continents. And, and as he lies on his deathbed, he gathers his family around him. And he digs up the strength to speak his last words. And this is a guy who knows the scriptures by heart. And you're like, okay, what is this guy going to say? It's going to be deep. It's going to be profound. So what is he going to say? What's he going to say? And someone who was there records that in his last 60 seconds of life, he sits up and he says, best of all, God is with us. And then he lies back down with his fist in the air. It was his last breath. He says it one more time with emphasis. The best of all. God is with us. Then he dies. And the problem with, with motivational speakers and the self-help movement is that it teaches that the answer lies in you. So we know that the, the entire motivational speaking philosophy is based on you being able to fool yourself. And delude yourself into believing that you are something that you are not. But it all falls apart when you begin to see yourself as you truly are. You look in the mirror and you reach that place where you know yourself. You know you. Other people may not, but you do. And you know, man, I can never delude myself into believing I am the solution for all of my own problems. And if I'm all there is, there's no hope. Because I know me. And that's the starting point of the gospel. That's the starting point of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is for those who have reached the place where they realize that they are irreparably broken on a spiritual level, the deepest level, and that has just expanded and echoed out into every part of our lives. We're broken in a way that we can't fix, in a way that we can't repair in the deepest part of ourselves. The Bible tells us that brokenness comes from a broken relationship with God that we all caused by rejecting him in some way. And whether we realize it or not, living in such a way where we said, you know what, I'll fix it myself. I'll fix it myself. We have a broken relationship with God. We've all rejected God. So that God, this is the good news, that God comes to earth and says listen the punishment you deserve for rejecting the god who made you i'll take it for you i'll take it for you and in taking that punishment i will repair what you cannot i will fix what is broken i'll restore that relationship and we are made spiritually whole through jesus and then that begins to echo out into every area of our lives we're made spiritually whole And then the truth, the Holy Spirit inside of us goes to work bringing healing and wholeness to every area of our lives. The Bible says that process doesn't actually finish here on earth. I don't know if you've noticed that about yourself. You're not completely fixed yet. But the Bible says that process is finished when we arrive in the presence of God and we're made whole in every area, in every area. That's the good news of the gospel Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Jesus. That's why the Bible calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. It says Christ in the deepest part of you, Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit in you, is the comfort of knowing, hey, there's hope. There's change happening. Might not be as fast as you want, but something is going on here. And the one who started the process is able to finish it. God is with us. There is no more glorious truth I can give you this morning than God is with us. He's with us. Let's pray. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to give an opportunity for anyone this morning who would say, if I'm honest, I'm not sure that God is with me because I'm not sure that I've ever allowed him to repair that broken relationship. If that's you this morning and and you have a chance today just to within your own heart, your own mind, just to say, God, I want that. I want the repaired relationship. I believe you're the only one who can fix it. I believe you did it for me. And so I want you to come into my life. I want you to lead my life. I want to follow you for the rest of us. I just want to encourage you that God's calling on your life is greater than your own insecurities. The solution to everything you lack is not you becoming more. The solution is the God who already is. The great I am. That's the hope. The power of Christ in you can help you be more gracious than you really are. It's what's going to help you be the spouse that you wish you were but you feel like you can't be. It's what's going to allow you to be the parent that you wish you were, but you feel like you just can't be. It's going to allow you to be the worker, the student, the Christian, that you feel like you can't be. Everything you're lacking is found in Christ. And he's never going to call you to something he hasn't equipped you for. You are never without hope when you can say in honesty, God is with me. He's with me. He's with me. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you all the way to the end. All the way. So Father, I just pray for all of us this morning that your spirit would do the work that you desire to do. Where there is doubt, may it be replaced with faith. Where there is uncertainty or fear or insecurity or inadequacy. God, we don't replace that with an inflated view of ourselves. We replace it with a right view of you. That you are greater, higher, stronger over all things. Limitless, creative, and powerful, almighty. Instead of looking in the mirror, God, we lift our eyes to the heavens, to you. That's where our hope comes from. It comes from you, God. We thank you that we are not enough, but you are. You are Christ in us, the hope of glory. Just be still before the Lord and allow him to speak to you. Open your heart to him. Respond to him. Pour out your heart to him.